Welcome to On Brand. My guest today is Cassie Hutchinson, who uh, burst on the national scene uh, last year. She is was has a new book out called Enough. Um, she was Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's chief of staff, principal assistant. Uh, her title is special assistant to the president, coordinator of legislative affairs. She uh, has been a heroic whistleblower on her time at the White House. And welcome, Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me. So are you feeling, you, I, I know, I, I've listened to a bunch of your interviews and, and, and read your book, and I know you were very, very nervous for a period of time. Are you feeling a little safer these days? Or are you still very, very unsettled? No, I, I feel a lot safer for the most part. Um, you know, I've, I've been really fortunate, especially in this portion of my life since the book has come out. You know, I think that there is a sense of security and a safety net that comes with being in the public eye, which I recognize that I'm fortunate to now have this position, although it has been an adjustment, candidly. Um, but I also recognize that there was a portion of my life where I didn't have that safety and security net. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of Americans that have been direct targets of the president, Mr. Trump's threats. And they don't have that, uh, they don't have that privilege. So, you know, I think I recognize where I am now, and I wouldn't say my guard is completely down, but I, you know, I am equally devoted to making sure that other people don't have to face these, uh, face that, those threats. Although, especially with the gag orders going and coming, going in courts. It's a, it's a little up in the air. You know, it's, it, you know, I've been such an outspoken uh, um, uh, anti-Trumper and I've had so many people say to me, you know, if he gets reelected, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, and as far as him coming after his enemies, I mean, what's your reaction as you saw his text Thanksgiving and it's all about going after his enemies and vitriol and hate. And obviously you were removed from it now. How do you feel when you see one of his, one of his tweets now or whatever they're called? I have mixed feelings and mixed feelings because I should be much more disgusted than I am. And believe me, I am very disgusted. I, it is besides being undemocratic and just horrible, horrible rhetoric, rhetoric for anybody to say, Donald Trump's rhetoric hasn't changed. You know, it has become more violent. It has become a little bit more prolific. But Donald Trump has been who he is for decades. And he was violent in 2016. He was violent in 2020. I, we have been on different sides of it now. I am hopefully becoming accepted onto your side. And I applaud people like you who did not have blind spots to his character and his integrity and didn't see uh, and, and who saw what he said and took it at face value. I was one of the people that didn't. And that's something that I regret, but I do see that very, very clearly now. And I see how it transcends throughout America. And I see how it does rile people up. And there are a lot of people who take it seriously. And I think besides Donald Trump being extremely dangerous, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about, the way that he is able to connect with his voters and with his base and make political violence and the political rhetoric acceptable. You know, this is how we see democratic institutions and constitutional republics unravel. And we have been undergoing this transition since he burst onto the political scene. And it looks like in this next year where it's not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. No, you, there are so many anecdotes in the book. Um, 
when do you remember the first time your tummy meter went off where you said something's not right here? You you were part of the uh you were you kind of drank the Kool-Aid, you were in there, you were inside, you're working for Meadows, he recruited you and you're do you remember a moment of even if you kind of didn't give into it, but then an instinct took you and said this something just not right here? There were several times throughout my tenure in the administration where, you know, I my the alarm bell started going off in my mind most of the time I was able to quiet them. And, you know, I think that that's the strength in Trump world, unfortunately. And again, I, I'm speaking now with hindsight. Um, you know, I had this ability to turn off my emotions and stay mission focused. And part of that too is the fact, and, you know, I, I, I would have said this then, and I say this now, the Republican party is a very powerful messaging machine. So even when I would have those thoughts, and if I were to talk about them with somebody, normally it was like, no, 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 this is what it actually is. And oh, it, it was okay. I, I understand. But I think the first time that I really remember the feeling being a little bit more difficult to shake, um, you know, well, there's really two that pop in my mind, but the one I'll reference just for the purposes of this conversation. There was one time on a tarmac and we were in Wisconsin. This was the first rally we went to after uh, our failed coronavirus negotiations in July and August of 2020. And Mark and I were having a conversation on the tarmac and he looked back at me and sort of jokingly, at least that I perceived at the time, asked if I would take a bullet for the president. And he said it with a slight smirk on his face. And it, it I can't describe it in any other way other than I had this weird twisting feeling in my stomach and i just made a snipped half half sarcastic remark back i, and I said, love your response i love your response yeah, maybe to, the thigh, to, maybe the to the leg uh, but that, that's know. something that sat with me for a long time and i i thought about that over and over and i had a few conversations about that and it speaks you know it speaks to the 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 loyalty that is requested and required of people in that environment and you know i would like to hope that mark was kidding um, but I, you know, I, I don't know. So do you ever wonder now? And yet even then when you started to kind of see the light a little bit, how grown, I don't say men, grown men and women, but even at, kind of show this fealty and can still look themselves in the mirror, the, the kind of the human experience and the dynamic of, I, I, I gotta believe most of these people know the difference between right and wrong and, and truth and untruths. What was your, as kind of a babe in the woods, I don't mean babe in, in the woman terms, as a young person, do you remember going this, like, what's wrong with these people? Or like, how, how does this actually work? What is this, what is his voodoo that he has over people? In the moment, no. Uh, and I say that because I, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I intentionally did it, you know, I, I'm not here to play revisionist history. I made mm -hmm. a lot of mistakes. I had a lot of blind spots to not only Donald Trump's character, but to the character of many of my colleagues. Um, so I, I say no to that for a reason. And I, there's this moment that you know, I, I work, was very fortunate to work with a fantastic collaborator, Mark Salter. So when we were working through the narrative of the book, uh, I First, I told him about the moment that I felt for the first time drawn into Trump world. You know, I, I was raised in a blue-collar working-class family. I love my family. I adore my family. They were not politically active. Um, but 
in the, 2016 was the first time that anybody in my immediate family had voted, including myself, and I did vote for Donald Trump, never thinking he was going to win. But I think about the time that I went to the, my, my first Trump rally, and it was, it was his 100th day rally in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I'm probably you know, 30, 40 feet from the stage. So I'm pretty close. And he comes out, and I don't know if you've ever been to a Trump rally or if any of your listeners have been, but there is an electrifying feeling at a Trump rally. And I remember he came out, and it was really before he even started speaking that I was looking around and I was Trump open at that point. You know, I did vote for him, but I, I thought what he was doing in the first 100 days, there were some things I agreed with, many things I didn't, but I wanted to go just to see what it was like. But it was in that moment before he even began speaking, and I'm, I'm looking around at all of these people surrounding me, and you know, many of them, their mouths were agape, and they, I, I tried to refrain from using this term because Trump loves this term, but they did have tears in their eyes. And for me, it was this, it's, I look back on it now and it's a sort of cinematic moment because I really felt drawn to him then. You know, I was looking at all of these people who were mm-hmm. people that I didn't recognize because I knew them, but were people that I felt like I recognized because I grew up with people like them and I felt connected to them and I felt connected to his movement in that time because I felt that he was actually there to represent the quote unquote forgotten men and women of America, you know, I ended up working there and obviously my, my view has shifted since then. But even when I was working in the administration, who I was surrounded by wasn't so much a detriment. It was more of an empowering feeling then that there were some career government officials that had worked in the Bush administration who also saw something in Trump. So it was almost this corroboration of, okay, what we're doing is okay. I I say that with a degree of shame now. Um, And part of why I decided to write the book is because I was a very loyal Trump world insider and I have now seen the light and I'm on the other side of it, sometimes still trying to comprehend and make sense of all of it myself. But there are still thousands and thousands of Americans who are completely duped by him and the mystique that he has over, over them. Did you ever hear him, you know, it, I've spoken to Michael Cohen is a friend of mine and Michael has told me so many times the demeaning things he would say about the voters that vote for him. You know, they, they, did you ever hear him kind of put down the kind of the Trumpers in his own way and looked at, because we all know the people that vote for him, he would have nothing to do with. He can't stand. He looks down at, he demeans. Have, did you ever remember hearing him demean any of, any of his voters? You know, I, 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 short answer. Yes. I, I, I did overhear him say that, say things along those lines. Um, I overheard him say negative things about people in our military, but that's for, at least in my experience, it was always quickly followed up with something positive. So it was almost made to feel like he was sort of joking. Um, You know, I, I don't like to blame my age or being naive to anything on anything at all. I should have seen through it, but with the position that I have now, you know, I, I don't, there are plenty of people such as Michael Cohen who could very adequately speak to that and connect with mm-hmm. those voters in that way. I see my position as, you know, I, I don't want to ostracize those voters. I don't want those voters to feel that they are any less deserving of having a presidential candidate that is actually there to represent them. I see my role as helping educate those voters or 
you know, even swing voters to the dangers of Donald Trump, you know. And so what is that? What is as somebody who's been who has all the inside baseball? Been, what is that message that you want to give to those swing voters? If somebody right now is thinking is on the fence and they're saying, oh, maybe Biden's too old and this and that. And maybe we need somebody like Trump, even with all his faults. What, what do you say to them? You know, I think it, the conversation depends on who you're talking to. You know, I. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and if there was a one size fit all answer and I had the keys to the kingdom, right. believe me, I think that we'd all be in a much better place. Right. But right. I think in short and the most universal message, and you have to delve into this deeper, but at the, at this point in time, and I, I am not willing to concede or it's difficult for me to even speculate that he will be the Republican nominee, although that's what it looks yeah, like it at looks, this point. Looks like certainly looks like that. There's a lot that can happen in a year, and I'm hopeful that some another candidate will prevail, not only for the Republican Party but for the future of the United States. But that being said, it does look like it, it will be another Joe Biden and Donald Trump mashup. And if there is an independent or swing voter that I was talking to, the simplest thing I can say to them really is. A vote for Donald Trump is a vote for fascism. And if you yes. want to if you want to unravel our constitutional republic and our democratic institutions and embrace a fascist government, then Donald Trump is the candidate that you should vote for. I am personally on the side, and I would never tell people how to vote, but I am personally on the side of I would like to see our constitution survive and I have incredible faith in our founding documents and I have incredible faith in the generations of America generations of Americans including young people that have faith in the survival of our country but if we want that to happen you know the obvious candidate if it is a Trump uh Trump Biden mashup it's the candidate's Joe Biden Cassidy, you read, you know, I'm a marketing guy and you, you've you read my mind. The Democrats not only have to use the word, oh, we're going to we lose our democracy, they have to use the F word. You have to say you are voting for fascism. Here's what fascism looks like and compare them to other fascists. You have to, you have to go there. And so I, I love hearing you say that. There are some of the, some of the incidents in the book that are, that in the scheme of things are not the most dramatic things, but they... You know, him throwing food against the wall or ketchup against the wall. What's going on in your mind as you're watching the, the leader of the free world get bad news and literally like a six-year-old throw things against the wall? You know, in those moments, <laughs> it sort of is unreal to look back on and think about now be, for multiple reasons. But, you know, in those moments, the, there was, they were bad days and there are many bad days. You know, I we think about 2020 now and for me at least, I won't speak for others, it sort of is difficult to even recall adequately how insane to the year 2020 was. You know, we were dealing with a global pandemic. We had the civil uprising in the summer after George Floyd's murder. We are then going into a general election. So there's just a calamity of events that Donald Trump is uniquely unsuited to handle as president of the United States. He does have a temper. Um, you know, he wasn't just throwing food that he would flip the tablecloth. He would pound the table. And in my mind, in those moments, again, I feel differently about it now. 
it was more of a helpless feeling for me because I saw my job as if I served Mark Meadows well as the chief of staff, then he could serve the president of the United States well and moments like that would not happen. Looking back with hindsight, it speaks to the volcanic temper of Donald Trump and how his temper cannot be controlled and how there is not a person on this planet, including Donald Trump, who is deserving of sitting in the Oval Office and as the leader of the free world with a temper as great and as volcanic as his. One of the most despicable characters in the Trump universe is Rudy Giuliani. There's a very troubling passage in the book about what happened to you with him at a rally one day. Why don't you just just tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, just briefly. Mr. Giuliani was around a lot in the waning days of the administration. I say waning days, meaning he was around a lot, but specific to the post-election period. Yeah. I wouldn't say I was particularly close with Mr. Giuliani, but he was around the White House a lot in in the days leading up to January 6th, too. So on January 6th, Mark Meadows wanted uh, Mr. Giuliani to come back into the staff hold tent I sent a campaign campaign staffer to find him. Mr. Giuliani and his little coterie of aides, including John Eastman, made their way back into the tent. He, for days, had been carrying around binders and stacks of papers with, quote unquote, dead people. I'm putting quotes around, but dead voter, the names of dead voters. And when I saw him, he started waving around a stack of documents and we're walking towards each other. You know, in this moment, too, I'm I'm very stressed. I'm thinking, where's Mark? Why does he need to talk to Rudy? What's going on? So there's there's just a lot going on in these moments. So Rudy and I speak for a moment. He says, we have the evidence. He wraps me in a hug, which wasn't completely unusual. And I was wearing a little leather blazer that day. And he pulls back and he grabs the bottom of the blazer. And I was also wearing a skirt with tights. He said, by the way, I love this leather blazer on you. And in that moment, he, I'm trying to figure out how to best describe the gesture, but it's almost like the first half of his fingertips were touching the blazer and then slipped under the skirt. And in that moment, I just kind of peeled back and ripped away. And I just called to him that I would go find Mark. And you know, my, my next mission, mission was to find Mark. It wasn't something that I put a lot of thought into in that moment really honestly not really afterwards either it was extremely inappropriate it was unwelcomed it's something that he never should have done i can't say i'm surprised that he did it given his track record but you know i what i think is the important takeaway for that for readers on that is really two things one it speaks to how chaotic that day was and two these are the people that mr trump surrounds himself with now and has surrounded himself with throughout his entire career. You know, we think about Donald Trump as the president of the United States, but we also have to think about his aides, his advisors, and those who he keeps in his inner circle. Rudy Giuliani is one of those characters. And he does have the president's ear. And, you know, Donald Trump has showed that he is extremely demeaning and condescending towards women for decades. Rudy Giuliani as well. I have had a sliver of experience with that, but there have been many women who have had far worse experiences than whatever than what I have had. Cassidy, you became kind of a, an American hero in 2022 when you testified in front of the January 6th committee. And there were so many damning things in there, probably the most, and this will obviously come up uh, as he goes to trial, is that he knew he lost. And that was something that you communicated. Yeah, um, but I also think that Donald Trump's defense, or at least as it sounds now from what I read in 
the news, which I try to refrain from as much as I can, just for my mental health. Um, but he does act like he win, he won, and he acts like he truly believed he won. You know, whether he truly believed he won or knew that he lost is sort of neither here nor there. If prosecutors could prove that he knew that he had lost, that that would be great for their case. Um, you know, I think Donald Trump during that period, though from my experience and my exposure. And again, there are a lot of people who had a lot more experience and forward exposure to him than what I did, but he was grasping at whatever he possibly could to remain in office, whether that was convincing Mm -hmm. the courts that he had won, whether that was convincing himself that he had won, whether that was convincing the courts that he had won when he knew that he had lost. And then we got to the point where it was, you know, how can we obstruct the Constitution to remain in office for four more years? Your old boss, uh, Mr. Meadows, has immunity, which suggests he's got some very, very powerful information. What do you expect to hear coming from him? You know, I I don't want to get ahead of anything. You know, I, I believe it was ABC News that first published that report, and that was fantastic reporting on their end. I don't want to get ahead of anything that has been released publicly just because I I believe that the Justice Justice Department design is, is designed to operate effectively behind closed doors. And what we know in public reporting is oftentimes just a fraction of the work they've done. But I will say that in my experience, you know, I was very, very close probably the closest person to Mark Meadows throughout his tenure as chief of staff, but especially in the post-election period. In my view, there was nobody on this planet that knew more about the planning for January 6th and that had more exposure to Donald Trump during that period than Mark Meadows. So if ABC's report is accurate and he is cooperating with uh, DOJ investigators, I would hope and presume that he is being honest and forthcoming and recognizes that it is not only his duty as an American, but it's his duty as a father and a grandfather and as somebody who should serve in those roles as a role model and for somebody that wants to inspire more generations to serve in their the shadows of their leadership. You know, I it's difficult because I think, you know, Mark had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing and what I define the right thing, which is be forthcoming and share what you knew so we don't ever face a constitutional crisis like this again. And I just hope that he recognizes that duty and obligation now. When you were sitting there in front of uh, the committee and you're in the center of the universe with 13 million people watching you and you're 25, I guess you were 25 at the time and 26 or do you, do you remember saying to yourself, how did I get here? How did, how is this even possible? I mean, the surrealness of it. Um, do you remember what was going through your mind before, before they asked you your first question, you sitting there? Yeah, a lot of things and sometimes nothing at all. Sometimes it was just white noise. Right. I, right before I gaveled in, I, I can't say I recalled having that exact thought, although I definitely had that thought in the days leading up to and on the morning before the hearing. But I also recognized then and now that the reason I was sitting there that day, you know, I, I guess I should preface this. It shouldn't have been me sitting there that day. And I, I don't say that in a way where I'm trying to 
self-promote or, you know, pat myself on the back at all. You know, I, as a public servant, you take an oath to the constitution, not to partisan interests or an individual. And if you are subpoenaed or even are requested voluntarily to provide investigators what you know, whether it's Congress or an actual investigative body like the Department of Justice, it's a continuation of your public service. My path to that moment wasn't linear and there were many mistakes that I had made, but there also was a point, we mentioned a mirror test uh, a short time ago where I was employed by a Republican member of Congress who did not serve on the January 6th committee, who I had been very open with about the moral struggle I had been encountering since my first few interviews at the committee where I hadn't been forthcoming. And this member implored me to look in the mirror to practice the mirror test and ask me if I could live with myself for the rest of my life. And from that point forward, I, I made conscious choices to one, be more forthcoming with the committee, but it was also a, a choice for me to be there that day. You know, I, I was asked to be there that day by the committee. And as much as I didn't really want to be, I recognized the importance of having a voice that was willing to speak truth to what happened on January 6th to the nation because the nation deserves answers. Well, thank God you did, and you're a hero for doing it. What are you doing now, Cassidy? Uh, well, right now I'm talking to you. I okay, <laughs> Not this very set in general. <laughs> I understand. I apologize. Um, well, right now I've been on the book tour, I guess, uh, although book tour feels a little, feels a little weird to say. Uh, this part of my life definitely right. feels surreal. Um, yeah, I'm still figuring out what's next. I, I see what I'm doing right now though, as a continuation, you know, I, I, my public service didn't end on January 20th, 2021, and it didn't end on June 28th, 2022. when I testified in the process of writing the book and in this period afterwards, I, I still see this as a continuation of my public service because in this next year, we all as Americans have an opportunity to stop what has been happening and to stop this populist uprising and potential fascist takeover of our government and our democratic institutions. You know, I think it's imperative that we continue to have conversations, hard conversations with Americans. We encourage people to continue to speak out. And if I, if I can provide any solace in that environment or if i can even just change one mind or help open one mind you know i would see myself as being successful well cassie hutchinson you are a great american the number one new york times bestseller is enough i really appreciate your time today you stay well thank you so much thank you for having me